I have just finished reading uh, one of the most interesting and intriguing books I have read in, in quite some time, a book entitled The Hidden Campaign, FDR's Health in the 1944 Election, uh, written uh, by a medical doctor, uh, Dr. Hugh Evans, a professor and former chairman of pediatrics, a professor of prevention medicine and community health at uh, New Jersey Medical School. And uh, he has written a book which uh, has really captured uh, the, the attention of, of, of many readers and, and onlookers. And it's interesting because it coincides with uh, recent revelations about some of the health difficulties experienced by uh, President John F. Kennedy, both before and during his presidency. And uh, so that's maybe one reason why this book is, is generating uh, even more interest than it might otherwise, because it folds into a, a dialogue that was already uh, occurring and brings to mind a number of, of very important issues that, that need to be addressed about the, the, the very nature of the office of president and uh, what the public and, and what the press has a right to know. And so we'll uh, explore some of those issues as well with, with Dr. Hugh Evans, the author of The Hidden Campaign. And we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, very glad to uh, be talking with you. Can you give us some sense of how you first became uh, intimately acquainted with this particular question or chapter in our history and, and what precipitated the actual writing of this book? Well, uh, I remember the actual event. And I describe uh, in the early pages of the book. That's right. You were 10 years old, I think. That's right. What it was like to be a child listening to the radio and listening to the adventure program. And this was in the midst of World War II. And at long last, things were uh, coming to a conclusion, or at least so it was hoped. And there had been many setbacks and disappointments along the way. And just to put it in context, uh, World War II, for those who are too young to remember it, was the war. It was totally pervasive. It, it really saturated your every thought. Uh, all the songs of that era were directed towards the war. Movies were. Uh, the home front was really the arsenal of democracy. In that context, I remember listening to uh, Captain Midnight, Children's Adventure Program, and having the narrative interrupted with the announcement that the president is dead. And I remember vividly how shocked and surprised everybody seemed to be both um, at a family level and at a social level, but also at a government level, people who had seen him and worked with him. Uh, the death was described as premature, untimely, sudden, unexpected. And no one had any sense that FDR was fatally ill. Uh, ten years later, I enrolled in medical school, and I began to decode some of the words the thought occurred to me, uh, and this is now many years later, that there's a very subtle interplay between politics and medicine. As you mentioned, I was department chairman, but beyond that, I was a department director for 12 years. Before that, I was a deputy director at yet another teaching hospital for seven years. Before that, and there was a constant interplay of political issues, which I don't say necessarily in a disparaging way, but simply political issues and medical realities. The opportunity here. Uh, arose for me to interview Dr. Bruin, who was FDR's cardiologist and attended to him daily in the last year of his life, and who made the diagnosis of congestive heart failure, a disorder which carries a very high rate of mortality, certainly at that time and even to the present era, uh, still is a formidable diagnosis. That diagnosis was withheld from the public 
uh, and virtually from everybody. So that when he ran for office in 44, there were comments about how haggard he looked. There were some intimations of impending mortality, but that was only in the context of the campaign. Once he won re-election, the subject seemed to have been dropped completely. And um, in the interval until he was re-inaugurated with Senator Truman as vice president, uh, there was very, very little comment about this. So following my interviews with Dr. Bruin, which were very informative and are, are recited in detail in the book, I had the opportunity to interview many other people, Harold Stassen, for example, who was a delegate to the U.N., John Kenneth Galbraith, um, uh, was another one, Herbert Brownell, who later was an attorney general but was Governor Dewey's campaign manager, uh, Secret Service people, airplane pilots, Margaret Truman herself uh, granted me an interview in 99. And putting it all together, I thought I had a story which needs to be told, uh, one that perhaps raises more questions than answers. Uh, what do you need to know, as you said a moment ago? Why do you need to know it? What is pertinent and uh, legitimate for public disclosure? And what can appropriately be shielded within a perimeter of privacy? Uh, and, and hence, this volume. I wanted to mention two books which... Uh, I have read in the past, which are are close to the topic, and I think that's one reason why I've I've had a, a personal interest in this uh, particular slice of our history, and uh, but but I'm so grateful for your book uh, taking this this particular chapter and, and really uh, diving in with with even greater depth. One of the books I wanted to mention, which I assume Dr. Evans you're at least familiar with and perhaps read, I don't remember now if you actually uh, remark about it in the book or not, is Jim Bishop's book called oh, FDR's yes. Last Year. Right. Uh, which and, and on the back cover, this book really has no photographs whatsoever, except on the back cover. There are four photographs. Uh, the first, November 1943 of FDR at uh, Tehran, and then three photographs after that that take us uh, in sort of equal installments through to, to March of 1945, just before he died. Right. And the decline is drastic. And, uh, and, and that right there, in a nutshell, kind of encapsulates much of what you explore in, in the hidden campaign. I, I did read uh, Bishop's book, and um, I remember asking uh, Dr. Bruin about this. Uh, Bruin is quoted in that book as well. Uh, frankly, he was, uh, as I recall, somewhat disparaging about the accuracy of the quotations. Uh, he has, as I recall, Bishop's book. It's been some time since I've read it. But he has FDR saying uh, a variety of things that are a little bit out of character, some self-pitying remarks, some remarks expressing futility of going on, possibly intimations of his own mortality, which uh, Dr. Bruin at no time had heard, nor really did anybody else. And indeed, in FDR's own planning, he was very forward-looking at the moment of his death. Uh, within the hour of the death, he was planning his uh, Jefferson Day address for the next day, which was the 13th, then to return to Washington, and from Washington to travel by rail to San Francisco for the opening of the U.N. He then had further specific plans to, to visit um, uh, Great Britain, to be a guest of their majesties, possibly to address the parliament, and so on. So that he, he clearly was thinking in a very forward direction, pragmatically. He was not anticipating uh, mortality. So that there are a number of things in Bishop's book, which is well-written, very interesting book. Uh, nonetheless, I, I would really doubt the accuracy of it. 
Right. Well, he is, of course, the author of The Day Lincoln Was Shot and The Day Christ Died. And right. those are both examples of, of works that, that uh, fill in the gaps sometimes with uh, the writer's imagination. He would probably be the first I, I think to. I that's I'm a good at. way of putting it. You're right. <laughs> right. The other book that I wanted to mention, which I, I do know that you uh, specifically cite at, at several points, is one of the best books I think I have ever read about uh, an American president, uh, Hugh Gallagher's book, FDR, oh, yeah. Splendid Deception. And I interviewed uh, Gallagher. Really? Uh, the I think a, a lot of us, as we first saw that book on the library shelf or in the bookstore, uh, figured that it was maybe a book about espionage or behind-the-scenes uh, political maneuvering or the covering up of scandal or whatever. Right. But, of course, FDR's Splendid Deception refers to the fact that, to a remarkable extent, uh, FDR's uh, situation uh, as a victim of polio was... Uh, basically off the map in terms of being discussed by the press or, or even in public. It, it, is, it is amazing to the degree that people seem to be unaware of just how debilitated his, his, his condition was. Well, Greg, I have a, a problem with, with that. I, I interviewed uh, Mr. Gallagher, who himself is a, um, a polio patient, and you may have seen the uh, public broadcasting um, a TV uh, series uh, about FDR and, and uh, was uh, aired rather recently, at least here in the Northeast. And uh, it's obvious, um, without probing into uh, Mr. Gallagher's own medical problems, that he clearly was uh, severely afflicted uh, with with polio. He too has had a, an amazing career, and he was just a delightful person to speak to. And I appreciate the time that he had, had given me. However, I do have two problems with that he talks about uh, FDR as being clinically depressed. And I'm not sure, even after interviewing Mr. Gallagher, what the basis for that was. Um, there is a tendency uh, with many presidents and presidential candidates to get into all sorts of pseudo-psychiatric analyses. And um, I don't deny that anybody afflicted as FDR was would have some sort of situational depression, but I don't think that was part of his makeup other than transitorily. As far as splendid deception is concerned, though, I, I do differ. As a child, I was well aware of the fact that FDR was a polio patient. Every January 30th, his birthday, we'd be asked to contribute to the March of Dimes, which was uh, to uh, benefit the Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And he, of course, was the premier patient with this. Every polio season, late August through Labor Day, we were told, don't go swimming, movies would be closed, camps closed, and so on. And everybody would uh, underline this by saying, well, look, the president had a polio, and if the president could have polio, why? You as a, an 8- or a 10-year-old obviously were, uh, to say the least, equally if not more uh, vulnerable. There's clearly no epidemiological link between uh, an individual who was afflicted in 1921 and the events of, of two decades later. But still, in people's minds, that was yet another identification. And finally, every Thanksgiving, he would go down to Warm Springs, which is where he ultimately died, but in any case, would go down there, and he'd be seen having Thanksgiving dinner with a group of children, all of whom were in wheelchairs. So indeed, it was known. Time magazine, during the campaign that I refer to, and I go into this in detail, every single week from Labor Day to Election Day specifically discusses the wheelchair, whether he was standing, seated, what his body posture was. In his obituary notices, there's extensive uh, discussion of the polio. When Winston Churchill eulogized him, he placed great, great emphasis on FDR's extraordinary courage, 
um, intellectual and, and personal coach and being able to overcome polio and rebound into uh, positions of extraordinary responsibility. And you may remember Churchill said things like, not one man in 10 million and, and so on. So I, I think that it was very much in the public mind. I agree with Gallagher that specific clinical details, no. We, we did not have his muscle chart, which Gallagher does publish, available, nor need we have had this. I think uh, any uh, informed individual from a five-year-old on up was aware of this. He's right. They did not understand the magnitude of this. And numerous references by visitors to him when he was governor and president all comment, well, gee, I, I didn't know he was that severely afflicted. Um, I, I think he, he handled it in a very debonair way, very matter-of-fact way. He very rarely referred to it. I think one of the problems with the movie Pearl Harbor, in which there's a scene which the actor depicting FDR specifically refers to his paralysis and I think actually shows off his braces and so forth, that's totally out of character right. for him. That the, the topic was kind of off the map as far as FDR was concerned, it seems. Um, very, very rarely would refer to it as very last speech, March 1, 45, his final address, an extremely important address, because unlike Wilson, he reported back to the American people. He was bipartisan. He brought the Congress into the planning for the post-war world, specifically the United uh, Nations. He starts out by saying, I hope you will pardon me for the very unusual posture of being seated while addressing you, but it makes it much easier for me than having to carry about the bottom of my legs 15 pounds of steel, and because I've just completed a 15,000-mile journey, and it's greeted with rousing bipartisan uh, applause. It's done with grace, a typical Rooseveltian flair, not self-pitying, just very, very matter-of-fact. And he, by the way, in that speech, he handles the health issue which you alluded to very well. He says, you know, there were these rumors that I was terribly ill when I was overseas. He said, actually, I felt fine when I was overseas. It was when I got back here <laughs> that I didn't feel well. And he was referring to one of the marital difficulties of one of his uh, children, which was then front-page news. And it was sort of an insider joke, but the Congress laughed appreciatively. And, and this was typical um, FDR uh, irony. Uh, he obviously was ill, by the way, when he was at, at Yalta, and, and that's described in the book. I don't think it had any material effect on, on the outcome. Hmm. I think one of the things that Mr. Gallagher would say, and uh, I think you're probably right that he overstates the public's ignorance of the fact that FDR had polio. Uh, maybe they were ignorant of its severity. He, I think, is taking to task uh, historians who discuss FDR and who make so little, if, if any, reference to the fact that he was a victim of polio, as though that was not uh, an important element in FDR's makeup as, as a human being and as the way that he carried on his, his life. Just the fact that it, it, it often is, is uh, worthy of a, of a brief mention and not much more. Well, I think that's absolutely right. This was truly the major life-transforming event. Uh, he did not acquire the poliomyelitis until he was 39 years of age, namely on August the 10th of 21. And at that point, uh, his career trajectory was primarily an upward uh, trajectory. There was there were some clouds on the horizon, which I go into in, in the book, as as did Jeffrey Ward, and I, I really uh, adapt uh, 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 Jeffrey Ward's um, a description of, of some of FDR's political problems as well as his marital difficulties at that point. Nonetheless, on paper at least, his career was, in, was described as an upward arc 
He was a state senator, a deputy cabinet officer, and then a vice presidential candidate, all at a very, very young age. Uh, at a personal level, he was a dancer, golf player, tennis player, very athletic uh, individual. And so the paralysis, which of course would be devastating to anybody, was especially uh, devastating for him. And he had about a seven or eight year uh, hiatus, although he was busy with law practices and private investments and so on. But he was devoted primarily to his uh, recovery. Uh, undoubtedly, it had an enormous impact on his thinking, on his understanding of, of the human uh, condition. Although I think throughout he was a pragmatic a political leader in much of what he would have done, he probably would have done anyway. But I think it made him an empiricist. Um, it made him a person who went beyond uh, rigid dogmas of the past and, and was willing to explore within the limits of political reality um, possibilities for the future, as he did in his physical recovery. Uh, he had uh, advocated all kinds of exercise programs. He developed a crutch, which apparently is still used, the muscle chart, uh, which uh, Mr. Gallagher shows apparently was adapted by FDR. So he was very much an identifier with the disease, and he took on a medical role. He referred to himself as Dr. New Deal, Dr. Win the War, and specifically the former was an internist, and the latter was an orthopedic surgeon. And uh, obviously his choice of orthopedics would, would be particularly germane. When he toured the uh, Army uh, hospitals, the military hospitals, he always asked to go to the orthopedic ward because obviously there are people there who had lost limbs, specifically lower extremities, and he would be wheeled in in order to emphasize the identification with them. In his final inaugural, there was a very poignant photograph of a military officer shot from, from the back, and obviously he's lost a limb. You see his the trouser leg is, is pinned up, and you see FDR on the other side of this, and there's a clear-cut um, uh, analogy between the soldier and, and FDR. So I think that the, the polio itself, although it's not the basis for his death, and it was not the cover-up that I'm referring to. The polio itself was a, a, a really a central feature uh, in his life. We're talking. We're talking today on the morning show with uh, Dr. Hugh Evans, the author of a book entitled "The Hidden Campaign: FDR's Health." and the 1944 election. Dr. Evans, one of the places you, you begin in, in telling this story uh, as preamble to uh, the specific events of 1944 and 45 uh, is that you lay out for us uh, some of the details or information that we know about Franklin Delano Roosevelt's health well before becoming president in 1933. We've already touched on, on uh, the moment when he is stricken with uh, poliomyelitis in 1921, you actually sketch for us uh, kind of an interesting picture that in some ways seems almost a bit contradictory in that we're told on the one hand that FDR uh, was an active man, and yet you also tell us something about how his health was never particularly robust, that, that there, were, there was a little bit of a propensity there for, for physical ailments of one kind or another, even as he was a strapping young man. Well, yes, but none of those were life-threatening, nor were they even uh, seriously disabling in any way. Uh, he did have recurrent bouts of bronchitis, upper respiratory tract infections. I don't get to mention it in the book, but his very first letter to his mother, uh, he's only about six at the time, describes in detail uh, his sniffles and coughing and, and whatnot with a, with a cold. And his mother would later say, and, and uh, she was now referring to her son, the president, uh, Franklin has to be babied. 
a lot when he has these calls. Hmm. But I, I think that this was a convenient excuse when the moment of truth emerged in the 44 campaign and in the um, spring of 44, because the official line was, well, he's four years older and he does have bronchitis. And he was well known to, to be a, a patient with bronchitis. Indeed, his physician was in your nose and throat specialist who probably did not understand fully the significance of the hypertension, which was the underlying problem leading to his congestive heart failure in March, belatedly diagnosed in March of 44, and then on to his death on April 12, 45. But throughout his lifetime, he did have cold bronchitis. He did have the usual childhood afflictions, but somewhat later than uh, most children would because he was raised as a solitary child in this enormous mansion. He was not exposed to most of the childhood illnesses at a time that others would be. Um, he didn't leave home until he was about 14. There were governesses and tutors and so forth who were brought in, and he's very well educated, but at home with this. And he did have uh, scarlet fever and measles and so forth, uh, which uh, were, were typical of that, of that era, but nothing that was, was life-threatening or, or disabling. I did try to find his infirmary records. I was a guest speaker at Harvard, and unfortunately they destroyed after 80 years, and he was an old four graduate mm. uh, of, of Harvard, so that 80-year interval has, has gone by. So you didn't miss it by much, but... Uh, well, but, but they didn't preserve it. And, and in the meantime, though, if you look at his Harvard uh, record, and he was the editor of the school newspaper... Uh, apparently, he was quite active, and there's no indication at that time, uh, nor in his subsequent um, uh, law school days, and he was in private practice for three years, then on to the state legislature, and I sketched his um, uh, pre-polio activities, and at no time was he really seriously ill, except when he returned from the battlefield in 1918. Uh, as the highest-ranking civilian uh, government official to visit the war zone. And he did contract influenza and bilateral pneumonia, called double pneumonia, uh, coming back. Some of his shipmates died, actually. And this is part of the influenza pandemic that has uh, a great deal of medical significance in its own right. I would say that was probably one of the few really serious illnesses, along with appendicitis, and that was a major problem in 1915. He had an appendectomy. He also had a tonsillectomy in about 19. 19- 20 or so, but that was related to his upper respiratory tract infections. Uh, so, yes, and in a sense, he, he did have some of these illnesses, but so did others. Influenza with, with, the, with the worldwide pandemic is not unusual, in, uh, as in, he was not an unusual patient uh, in that respect. I want to stress, however, that really none of these, as matters turned out, were life threatening nor disabling, uh, other than in an acute short term sense. But they provided him and his physicians with a, a wonderful rationalization uh, for the coughing and the occasional low-grade fevers and perhaps not being seen in public uh, apart from military necessity. Hmm. It, it gave them a, a card to play in, in, in a sense. Well, and it was one that the public was used to. Uh, and he himself made mention of this when the diagnosis of congestive heart failure was made. He brushed this off. I don't think it was, it was given to him. But he, he just said, well, this is bronchitis, and they're worried about whether it's going to become pneumonia or not, and there's only a 1 in 10,000 chance that that will happen. And that this was all a blind a loop that had absolutely nothing to do with the underlying uh, reality that he was now receiving digitalis and 
Uh, I describe in the book many of the clinical signs of congestive heart failure belatedly diagnosed because he did not get to see a cardiologist until March 28th of 44, and he was obviously ailing for several weeks before that. FDR, of course, contracts polio in 1921. You tell us something about that. And I think one of the most chilling things in this particular chapter is you, you give us at least a couple of excerpts from letters from FDR in, in the late teens when he makes mention of rampant polio. And uh, uh, I think in one case, one letter, he's maybe suggesting that some relatives maybe not come to visit because there just seems to be polio everywhere. And it's just chilling to read those words, knowing that he has no way of knowing at that moment in time that polio is going to become a part of his life. And you mention also that he contracts polio uh, at a rather atypical point in life. If I'm not mistaken, uh, he was older than a typical polio victim. Oh, yes. And he refers to this with typical humor. He said, I'm, I'm a little bit long in the tooth to have infantile paralysis. He was 39. He was actually a patient at the Children's Hospital uh, at Harvard, uh, an outpatient. Uh, they did not have facilities for each age range. Uh, he was in the older 5 to 10% of individuals who contracted um, polio. So he, he certainly wasn't the oldest person in history, but he was among uh, the older ones to to have acquired this, and I speculate that perhaps his solitary upbringing in this rarefied uh, strata might have epidemiologically and demographically uh, predisposed uh, him and people like him uh, to polio, where children who were raised in uh, crowded uh, urban environments would have had a natural immunity. Most polio infection uh, is asymptomatic, that is, there's no signs of it. It's just simply carried from person to person, and then there's a group that has mild gastroenteritis, vomiting, and diarrhea. And then after that, there are relatively few who actually have the neurological uh, manifestations, and clearly he was in that, that category. Now, we don't know that for certainty, but it, it seems to make sense uh, epidemiologically. I see your first point, yes, and in the book I point out he, he calls infantile paralysis I period, P period, IP. And that's one of the ways he dealt with very serious issues, is to try to... Uh, make a pun of things or to give a humorous reference to, to something as a way of diffusing the tensions. And as you state, he does give a very clear uh, picture of the epidemiology, and this was in 1916, which was a major year for polio. And, and not every year was identical in the uh, magnitude of the, of the epidemic, but 16 was a major year. And he uh, importunes his wife, who refers to his dearest Babs, to keep uh, the children and the household staff and everybody out of harm's way. And he describes various towns uh, in New England where polio does seem to have uh, emerged and others where it, it did not. Uh, obviously, there is an irony in all of this because he uh, would become a, a polio patient himself some five years later, but who could have known it at that time? We, of course, should move on from, from polio to the sort of essential heart of, of your book, but I do want to make mention of a quote of FDR's son, Eliot, which I had not read before until your book, in which uh, he is quoted as saying, Life as a cripple intensified all the characteristics shown in his, meaning FDR's letters prior to 1922. His stability became more stable, his optimism more optimistic, and notwithstanding his inability to walk, even his independent nature was intensified. Well, I, I think that the point that, the, 
in, in that quotation, and we've seen others like it, is that there's a compensatory development of other senses. Uh, if a person is unable to hear, they may develop greater visual acuity, and, and or seemingly, and, and vice versa. I think with FDR, um, it, it's hard to separate the pragmatic from the more philosophical, because clearly he was a very uh, pragmatic, realistic political leader. He, he knew how to count the votes, as any successful uh, political leader must do. And I think he would have done that anyway. But he did seem to develop that warmth and that empathy. And in fact, there's another quote, it's not in the book, it's, it's been done elsewhere. Mrs. Roosevelt was asked rather tactlessly, do you think that the poliomyelitis affected your husband, he was alive at the time, your husband's mind? And it's rather a, a say the least, a nasty question. See, uh, in characteristic fashion, parried this by saying, yes, it made him much more empathetic and much more concerned about the well-being of other people. And that's very much in line with what um, his son Elliot is, is quoted as, as saying. He certainly would have had this understanding. And again, he spent so much time uh, in uh, convalescent centers. Indeed, he created the model convalescent center um, and in Merriweather County, Georgia, namely at Warm Springs, that he would have a necessity uh, had to uh, emerge from this as quite a different person, uh, both for medical reasons and as well, I do want to stress, pragmatic political reasons uh, uh, were very important, too. We're talking to uh, Dr. Hugh Evans, the author of The Hidden Campaign, FDR's Health in the 1944 Election. Uh, Dr. Evans, you say in the book that... Uh, that when FDR is stricken with polio, it, it uh, essentially uh, forces a, a seven-year hiatus in, in FDR's political career, but he uh, manages a, a stirring comeback and is eventually, of course, elected governor of New York City and then in 1932 elected president uh, of the United States. Um, you talk about the, uh, the presidential years, the first decade, and uh, give us some sense of FDR's health, which by and large was, was, was fairly good, correct? Well, yes and no. Um, as far as his physical appearance is concerned, uh, he looked uh, to be uh, vibrant, uh, buoyant. Uh, he did not have the careworn, haggard look, which uh, you've already alluded to uh, using Bishop's uh, photograph, but there are other uh, documentation there's other documentation as, as well. However, almost every year or two, there would be a rumor that would spread throughout the country that FDR was um, very, very seriously ill. He was hospitalized, and uh, he might be hospitalized at the Mayo Clinic. He instantly visited his son there. He himself was not a patient. Uh, that he had either psychiatric uh, disturbance or he had a malignancy uh, that had metastasized or heaven only knows what else. And then he would um, survive that rumor intact in and in pretty good health insofar as the uh, alleged um, uh, grave illness was concerned. So the public, in a, in a way, was immunized because rumor after rumor would sweep the country. It wasn't true. And when, in fact, it was the other way around, when there really was grave and, and indeed mortal illness, it, it was denied. You, you mark the uh, Tehran conference in late 1943 as something of a benchmark right. in that uh, after he returns from that, uh, there seems to be uh, a marked 
uh, elevation of concern uh, about uh, FDR's health, those in his uh, inner circle begin to see at least subtle changes uh, in, in his persona, in, in the level of his vigor, and, and so no on. No question that there was a major quantitative uh, reduction, and I used the number of appointments per day as an index of his overall health, and I picked the month of March, and I walked you through each month from 33 right on through to 45, which is his last full month, and show you that in 44 we have a low point. And, in fact, there's a two-week interval in which he has, in effect, no appointments while in residence in the White House. That is unprecedented. I've reviewed his appointment record from his first inaugural right on through, and there is no comparable interval while he's in the White House in which he has no official appointments, maybe one or two exceptions. It's not clear that he actually saw those people. His uh, staff assistants may have seen them. And he's seen by a young New Dealer, uh, Mr. Aubrey Williams, who FDR was trying to persuade to come back into federal service. This is one of the few appointments that FDR actually did have. Williams is quoted in the Atlanta Constitution as saying, I've never seen FDR so haggard, so tired, so worn out. Uh, Of course he's not going to run for office again. He's much, much too tired for this. That was covered in the Atlanta Constitution. It's reprinted in the Times on, I think, page 26 or something of this kind, and really was not given front-page attention. Nobody really took up uh, the uh, issues that, perhaps unbeknownst to him, uh, Mr. Williams, Administrator Williams, was um, uh, was raising. The secretaries were very concerned. He apparently would, would not... Um, dictate as frequently as he previously had done. He might even nod off a little bit, uh, atypically in the midst of uh, dictation, then, of course, recover and and complete this. Uh, His daughter was in residence. The four sons were in uniform in combat zones all over the world, but um, his daughter, who was the oldest of the five children, was in residence, and she was very concerned about her father's deterioration. And importuned Dr. McIntyre, his official physician, and you know some throat specialists, to have FDR uh, undergo a general checkup, which McIntyre, by the way, insisted to the press FDR had always had an annual checkup, uh, head-to-toe equivalent to that of any naval officer, including McIntyre himself, who was a vice admiral. Uh, there's no documentation that I could find of such, but the medical records did disappear. And Dr. Bruin seemed to be a little uncertain as to whether these, in fact, had been conducted. Finally, matters reached ahead, and Anna insisted that the problem was more than the sinusitis and the bronchitis, which you had asked about earlier, and something more serious was happening. And on a Tuesday morning, uh, Dr. Bruin, who was in charge of the uh, cardiology department, or at least the EKG department of Bethesda Naval, he was a lieutenant commander, and a well-trained internist cardiologist himself, I think in his late 30s at that point, received a call from the Surgeon General that he was sending him a new patient, namely FDR, and uh, Dr. Bruin, who is, seems to be very, very unflappable, said, well, let me have his medical record. It's not clear that the medical record came along with him. To his uh, surprise, he found FDR in a, a state of very advanced congestive heart failure, which had not been diagnosed before. And I asked Dr. Bruin, well, when did this start? It didn't start on March 27th, obviously. He said, oh, no, no. I said, could it have gone back to Cairo, Tehran, late November, early December? 43 says, no, that's too far. He said, well, what about mid-January when FDR, for the first time 
in his presidency did not address the nation and the Congress and the State of the Union. He had done so in '43 and all preceding January. He said, yes, it's possible at that time. Uh, when the uh, official explanation was the bronchitis that, that again, you've mentioned, uh, clearly uh, in, in Dr. Bruin's mind is a very experienced cardiologist, perhaps this was the beginning of the congestive heart failure, but as I say, diagnosis was not achieved until about two months, a little more than two months, had, had gone by. We have kind of a sense in your book of these two doctors very much at odds, that is Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Bruin. Uh, Dr. Bruin discovering uh, alarming deterioration, but Dr. McIntyre uh, consistently giving to the press only the most sort of positive light of, of FDR's health. What is your sense of, of Dr. McIntyre's uh, motivation? Uh, I mean, w- w- was, was he blind to the information? Or was, was he well aware of the deter- deterioration but simply spreading misinformation? Or is, or is it possible that he was misunderstanding uh, the situation and the severity of, of FDR's physical decline? It's hard to say because um, even after FDR died, uh, McIntyre maintained the party line that this was a sudden, unexpected event. He writes a book called White House Physician a year and a half later in South State, completely glossing over the enormous elevation in blood pressure. Uh, under the current NIH uh, standards, this would have been considered very severe. That is the worst um, uh, and gravest situation with respect to the magnitude of the hypertension. He glosses over that a year and a half or two uh, later. I think that you have to understand that this was more a military matter than a medical matter. I asked Dr. Bruin whether he felt there was a dichotomy, a gap between his role as Lieutenant Commander Bruin, wearing his nation's uniform, the Navy uniform, in the midst of this global pervasive struggle, which I described in response to your first question, and that of Howard Bruin, MD, internist, cardiologist, background at Columbia Hopkins, uh, a background which he and I shared, although with different generations and different fields. Columbia College as well. And he said, yes, there was a gap. I was much happier as Lieutenant Commander Bruin, which I think was his way of saying he really had to go along with it. He was sworn to secrecy by the FBI, just verbally. There was no written statement. Plus, as he said, commonsensically, he never spoke up independently of McIntyre. What was McIntyre's role? Well, he, first of all, medically was an ear, nose, and throat specialist, which did not you know, necessarily mean that he would not understand general medical problems. Um, He was also a political advisor. Um, When Life magazine listed FDR's 10 most important um, deputies and assistants, McIntyre was listed there, not not for medical reasons. Uh, He had known FDR for many years. He was a protege of Carrie Grayson, MD, who was also Admiral Grayson, and who performed the same role um, with uh, Woodrow Wilson though I think much more skillfully, frankly, and, and greatly with the generalist. In any case, McIntyre's role was that of mouthing the party line, of really reinforcing the illusion that FDR was fine. And as I indicate in the book, there were 10 front-page stories in the time, some of them just a paragraph or so, some much lengthier, in which McIntyre is quoted as saying, he's just fine. He's four years older. He has bronchitis. There's enough. You know, wear and tear. 
And Roosevelt himself would comment on this in one of his campaign addresses. He would say, well, I met you four years ago, and I'm four years older, and so are you. And some people seem to be surprised by this. And he would sort of uh, approach this in a, in a kind of humorous and ironic fashion. I, I think that McIntyre was a major component of the cover-up. And Bruin just simply had to go along with it. He really had no choice. Hmm. One of the things that I think uh, was most striking to me in reading your book was that it never would have occurred to me that FDR's failing health would have been written about and discussed so openly in, uh, for instance, newspaper editorials. And, uh, and, and, it, and it really was. It, it, the, the issue was clearly out there. So it is not that people were ignoring this. Uh, it, it was cause for grave concern among many uh, observers and that's something I had not, not realized until I read your book. Well, uh, you have to understand, the focus started in the summer of 44 when there was just a terrible photograph of him, which I include in the book. And I remember the child seeing it, and he really looked dreadful for the first time without any question. Uh, he slack-drawed, he seemed glassy-eyed and so forth. Actually, if you listen to the speech, which I have done, the speech is just fine. And his which, voice which speech is this? Which speech and is this? This was brushed off. As, as being, you know, just one bad photograph. But from that point on, there was largely a partisan attack. Obviously, this was done primarily by the Republican press, uh, and I quote the Chicago Tribune, which is an extreme example of that, as being very explicit in forecasting that if you voted Democratic, you'd be voting for Senator Truman to become President of the United States. They, they come flat out and say this. And Time Magazine doesn't say that, but they certainly infer it. Life magazine, in three very detailed and well-reasoned editorials, recommends Governor Dewey, but it really was not health-related. I interviewed Herbert Brownell, who was really the point man in all of this. He was Governor Dewey's campaign manager, later attorney general, very prominent practicing attorney, uh, very uh, capable and sophisticated. And I asked him, why weren't you more explicit about this? And he told me, look, this is the problem. We're in the midst of World War II. Our opponent was the commander-in-chief and undoubtedly was the leader of a very successful effort. In fact, Dewey himself said, we're not going to change the military strategy or the military leadership if we win. But um, what, what Herbert Brownell pointed out to me, said, suppose we were wrong. Suppose, in spite of the absolutely dreadful appearance of FDR, he really was not mortally ill. He did not have any underlying disease. There's no way of looking at anybody and knowing what their blood pressure is. Um, that kind of error, could have boomeranged against us for a generation or more. It's not the type of error that you can, can really countenance. We really had to know. The campaign was split on this. Some people thought that Governor Dewey should be much more um, explicit about this. Others felt this was much too dangerous a, a, um, an approach. And interestingly, once he's reelected, all that talk evaporates. There is no longer any talk from Election Day through the inauguration through the actual moment of his death, that, my goodness, he, he could die at any minute. There was, there was very little to suggest this. By the way, when he was um, inaugurated for the fourth time, his comment to the press corps is, by the way, the first 12 years are the most difficult. <laughs> and they all broke up in laughter. And uh, there's another quote where Frank Kent, who represented the Baltimore Sun in those days, and I think goes on to the Herald Tribune, clearly has the Republican perspective, congratulates FDR on his re-election. He says, by the way, Mr. President, would you share with us your thoughts about a fifth term? 
and the wow. room erupted in laughter. And in no way was there any thought that this was a medical impossibility, hmm. which in fact was true. Right. One of the things I want to ask you about is uh, your sense of what should have been done differently. Uh, and I, I, I think you're, you're, you're going to have a, probably a couple of different responses to that. First of all, I wonder if you have a sense or, or an opinion that you care to share on whether or not FDR had any business running for that fourth term. I mean, I, I, I get a sense from your book that, that he felt compelled to do so, despite the fact that his health was uh, in such an alarming decline. Uh, what would you have had him do had you been in a position to advise him? I think that the basic decision for a wartime commander-in-chief with the outcome still not certain, fighting a very well-equipped foe uh, with, with an enormous war machine on the other side, our victories notwithstanding, with the enormous mortality, by the way, if you look at page two and three of the Times, as I did um, for this, and I quote Dr. Bruin's response to this, every single day uh, there would be announcement of death. And unlike Vietnam, this was a military uh, activity that brought in people in all ranks of, uh, and all walks of life. Uh, it was not uh, just one group or another group of people that were involved in it at the outset, this war was the war. It was totally different from Vietnam or any of the subsequent uh, struggles with due respect to the valor of those who fought uh, in, in them. I think the fundamental decision, only because of the war, was probably correct. And I would quote Douglas MacArthur II, self-described as a conservative Republican, that every day we had the same commander-in-chief, his differences with FDR notwithstanding, but we had that continuity with the plus. Indeed, when he did die, many people stopped and thought, well, what will this mean for the military leadership? What will this mean for our policies? Fortunately, Truman stepped into the breach very quickly, and there was no problem, but there could have been. Right. So I think that that decision was correct, but there were two modifiers. One is there should have been a contingency plan. Uh, Truman uh, was selected as vice president, I think, largely for pragmatic political reasons, and it turns out to have been probably an inspired choice. Um, uh, he was a self-generated uh, scholar. He knew a great deal. Uh, he, he, he really rose to the occasion. But I think he should have been better prepared. Right. Uh, so there should have been a contingency. And there's one more invidious problem. Suppose FDR didn't die, but suppose he had a Wilson-type stroke. I think it would have been uh, a real disaster for the nation. Uh, as it was when Wilson did have the stroke, but at least the war was over, to have the war continue and have a disabled president. Some contingency planning would have to have been in place for Truman to have stepped in as, a, um, as an acting president. Given, however, the constitutional realities of that era, the culture and climate of that era, and vice presidents were really very peripheral until perhaps Mondale, or even Nixon with Eisenhower was, was certainly much more central. But in that era, across party lines, vice presidents simply presided over the Senate and went to ceremonial occasions. There really was not a major work assignment for them, uh, except episodically. All in all, to answer your question, 
only because of the context and only because of the unique circumstances, I would think that the decision was correct with the two modifiers right. that I brought in. However, I think we're most unlikely to have that set of contingencies again, and I would not want to extrapolate from 1944 to any subsequent uh, election. A final question. The, the campaign, if we want to call it that, to hide FDR's uh, alarming physical decline, to what extent did that contribute to his death? Uh, I'm trying to understand this because you, you give us a sense that, that in fact, he was mortally ill. Uh, and so, it, at least given the technology of the day, there really was no, help, no, no realistic hope for him to recover uh, once this decline had begun. But was there any sense in which hiding the, the truth or the severity of his situation compromised the kind of care which he received? Oh, it's more than that. I think that the worst possible occupation that one could have had superimposed on the medical realities was that of being a wartime president of the United States, regardless of party or whether he did or did not have polio or anything else. Uh, Clearly, um, his treatment was woefully substandard uh, from a purely medical point of view. Uh, As I said at the outset, this was not a medical issue. It was a military issue. Uh, when I asked Dr. Bruin, I said, how many other patients have you had, given that degree of congestive failure who you treated at home? He said none, and he had many patients. He had a very uh, significant uh, referral uh, practice in Manhattan for, for decades. Undoubtedly had seen, and he indicated to me, had seen other patients with a congestive heart failure, probably a little less severe than FDRs. They would be hospitalized immediately. Indeed, any patient walking into an emergency room right now, uh, at any age, man or woman, with, with this level of, of blood pressure would probably be hospitalized, perhaps put in an intensive care unit, but in any case, uh, would not be permitted uh, to just go about their, their business. Uh, FDR should have been either hospitalized or have a hospital equivalent. Uh, this was not possible. Uh, there were other modalities of therapy besides digitalis that could have been given, mercurials with ammonium chloride. There was very special diets that were used. There were isothiocyanate. There was a surgical procedure. Granted, uh, none of them have the sophistication except the digitalis, perhaps the mercurial diuretics, although that's since been superseded with what we have today. But even given the spectrum of therapeutic uh, agents that were available, uh, the the goal was just simply keep him going with the least possible amount of intrusiveness uh, into his responsibilities as wartime uh, commander-in-chief. And yes, uh, there was a sacrificial component to this. From a purely medical point of view, uh, I think uh, in, an, in a totally different context, he obviously should not have run for president and perhaps should have even turned the reins over to somebody. But unfortunately, uh, Henry Wallace, who was his vice president, had uh, created uh, a great deal of difficulty for himself. So the purely medical answer to your question is one thing, and, and it's pretty straightforward and almost reflexive. But given that context and given the subtleties and the, the complications because of the war. I think, in general, what was done was correct, once again, with those two or more modifiers. The book is The Hidden Campaign, FDR's Health in the 1944 Election. Uh, its author, Hugh Evans, our guest today on The Morning Show. Dr. Evans, a real pleasure 
to speak with you, and I commend you for writing a really fascinating book, uh, which I'm sure will continue to generate great uh, discussion. I thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed being here.